Hello! Welcome to the Healthy Habits Happy Home Podcast, hosted by the Guelph Family Health Study. If you're interested in the most recent research and helpful tips for healthy, balanced living for you and your family, then this podcast is for you. In each episode, we will bring you topics that are important to your growing family and guests who will share their expertise and experience with you. Our quick tips will help your family build healthy habits for a happy home. Welcome back to the Healthy Habits Happy Homes podcast. I'm Tamara. And I'm Marcy Ann. And today we have a very special and unique episode of the Healthy Habits Happy Homes podcast. Today's episode features the work of some fourth year applied human nutrition students right here at the University of Guelph in the Family Relations and Applied Nutrition Department on campus. These students were tasked with creating an informative podcast for their fourth year nutrition education course. And today we have the pleasure of sharing three of the amazing student podcasts. First up, we have an episode on nutrition and supporting older adults by students Sartak, Amina, and Miriam. Enjoy! Hi, I'm Amina. And I'm Miriam. And I'm Sartak. Today we are talking about nutrition and supporting older adults in the community. Older adults face unique challenges that increase their risk for poor nutrition, including not eating enough protein. This not only poses a threat to their health, but also their quality of life. The caregivers can help lower this risk because they play an influential role in the lives of older adults and often help with diet-related needs. We start off by speaking with Kara Kasdorf, a registered dietitian with the Guelph Family Health Team and someone that's supported many older adults in the community over the years. Welcome to the podcast, Kara. Thanks for having me. So can you start off by telling us a bit about your years of experience working with local family health teams? Sure, yeah. So I've been a dietitian for about 16 years. I graduated from the MAN program in 2006, and then I worked in a hospital for a short period of time. Family health teams were just kind of being developed at that time. So I worked with two family health teams, so New Vision in Kitchener and Two Rivers in Cambridge for 10 years. And I worked as their nutrition lead and diabetes program lead. And then I went to the Guelph family health team where I've been working for five years. Wow, that's an incredible amount of experience. Can you give us an idea of how common malnutrition risk is, uh, particularly things like inadequate protein intake when we think about community-dwelling older adults? Yeah, I mean, I think as a dietitian in the FIT, we see patients that have been referred to us from their family doctor. So we don't necessarily do a lot of the screening ourselves. We know that uh, malnutrition is quite high in older adults. So I don't, I mean, I don't have like numbers in terms of patients that I see at the family health team, but I would say throughout the course of a month, I would see, you know, several patients that have been referred either for, you know, low intake or unintentional weight loss or, or some of those types of issues. It is quite high, but I do think that we're, we're probably not seeing all of the older adults that could benefit from uh, some intervention because of perhaps some lack of screening. So that brings two good points there. If we talk about maybe not enough people accessing resources, how could a caregiver support an older adult and perhaps accessing a family health team dietitian? How would that work? Yeah, so in Guelph, anybody that has a family doctor can see a fit dietitian, which is really great because in other cities in Ontario, not every family doctor is is associated with a fit. So in Guelph, a caregiver can just simply call their older adults 
family doctor's office and self-refer and book an appointment with a dietitian. So there is that option or meet with the family doctor and discuss their concerns and ask for a referral to a dietitian. So it is pretty accessible, but a lot of people actually just don't know that those resources exist. But really anybody can see a fit dietitian, which is a great resource. There is a bit of a wait list sometimes, but it is accessible for sure. I suppose all the more reason to take action earlier, especially if there is a wait list. Yes. And you mentioned about screening. The screening, it happens before uh, patients come to see you. Is that what it is? Which is why you're saying that you don't necessarily do the screening yourselves. Yeah. And so, you know, I've worked obviously in different family health teams in different scenarios. In the previous family health team I worked in, we did try kind of more a standardized approach to screening where the nurse, it was more so upon hospital discharge, a nurse would call the patient within a few days and do, I think it was two or three questions screen around nutrition and malnutrition and then refer as needed to the dietitian. Whereas in the well family health team currently, there's not like kind of a formalized process across the board for screening. So it's more so if the patient sees their family doctor for an issue and it's flagged that perhaps they've lost weight or, you know, the family doctor asks about appetite or food intake or that sort of thing. And then that would get flagged and referred to the dietitian, but it's not necessarily like a standardized protocol for screening. When patients do come to see you, can you give us a bit of an idea of how sessions work? What do you do as the dietitian? Yeah, for sure. So um, sessions, one-on-one sessions are usually 30 to 60 minutes long. And we would meet uh, with the patient. And then, you know, oftentimes there is a caregiver that will come along to the appointment. Since, you know, the pandemic started, there's been a lot of virtual appointments happening. So about 50% of our appointments are in person and 50% would be like phone or a video appointment, which actually has been a good thing for older adults if coming into the office is, is a bit of a challenge. And so we would do like a full assessment in terms of diet history, you know, medical history, you know, medication, supplements, lifestyle, living situation, you know, all of those sorts of of standard things. Sometimes we also do like a SGA, like the subjective global assessment to assess for risk or severity of malnutrition. And then we would provide individualized recommendations based on what what we're seeing, education on like community resources and supports that are available. Because oftentimes it's not just a matter of saying like, eat more protein rich foods, but it's like, how is that going to happen? Right? Like it's, it's not happening because of like, what are some of those root causes, right? Is it because they're in pain and not, you know, don't have any appetite? Is it because of physical limitations to preparing food? Is it, you know, financial constraints? So you kind of have to assess those root causes and then help them find solutions to that. So whether that's finding, you know, subsidized food programs or grocery delivery programs or support in home, helping them source out meal replacements or meal supplements, all of those sorts of things would be things that we might go to in terms of how to support them. That's incredible. And I thank you for kind of going over some of the common barriers. Kara, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the podcast today. It's been incredibly insightful. Kara Kasdorf, registered dietitian with the Guelph Family Health Team. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Wow, what an insightful discussion with Kara, but how does a caregiver in the community even get started? Yeah, that's a great point, and a great starting point is screening. So Kara mentioned that there are wait lists, so even getting access to a dietitian can take time. But there's a free screening tool called the Self Mini Nutrition Assessment that can be completed by you as the caregiver or by the older adult themselves. 
The cool thing is that it's available in over 15 languages, and it's endorsed by the Regional Geriatric Program of Toronto, as well as the Ontario Caregivers Association. Interesting. And how does this screening tool work? Yeah, so you answer six questions related to diet, body measurements, and overall health. And then it gives you a score that relates back to the risk for poor nutrition. So you can take those results and share it with your family doctor. And then they may refer you to a family health team dietitian like Kara. So I think as caregivers, this is a free and easy way for you to check in on nutrition risk. And you can complete it periodically, say twice a year, to see if there are any changes. Kara mentioned some great resources, but Amina and Miriam, I'm wondering if we can help caregivers who don't have access to a family health team or a dietitian. That sounds like a great first step. But once you've done the screening and you've identified a problem, what should be the next step for caregivers? So the next step would be to consider the factors preventing older adults from getting enough protein. So one major factor may be knowledge deficit as older adults and their caregivers could benefit from classes, cooking and nutrition education, but many simply do not know what's available to them within the community. That's interesting, Miriam. Are there any resources available in Guelph? Yeah, I've gathered a few resources that are within Guelph. To start right off, we've got a great one from the Guelph Community Health Center. So it's a nutrition workshop and it's a virtual cooking program. But since now we are going back in person and COVID is ending, it's a, it's a great way to go back in person and interact with older adults and their caregivers. So it's really It's a a good resource. This allows participants to learn kitchen skills and build healthy habits around meal planning. It's great that you mentioned that, Miriam. Financial constraints are another major barrier. And so we do have organizations like The Seed who provide affordable online grocery options for individuals in the community. I do love going to the grocery store and having that in-person experience. And I can imagine many people feel the same. And so The Seed also does run their sliding skill grocery store in person at the Gulf's Farmer's Market. And so does Hope House. They host their own senior-focused community food market to distribute fresh food and pantry items. Yeah, financial constraints are a big concern. But what about people facing time constraints? That's a great point, Sarthak. Many caregivers provide care, but then they also work and have these really busy schedules, which makes it difficult to find the time to cook. And so there are services like Meals on Wheels and Heart to Home Meals available. And these organizations provide nutritious and affordable meals to those who need help with cooking and meal prep. And to help with grocery shopping, most grocery stores in Guelph do provide grocery pickup and delivery services. So that may also be helpful. These are great resources for seniors in the community. Are there any resources for caregivers? Yeah, there's some great courses and presentations focused on caregivers providing nutrition support for older adults. So the Ontario Caregivers Organization has a helpful presentation on YouTube that includes nutrition and also looks at the impact of COVID-19. And then the Regional Geriatric Program of Toronto has a free course for caregivers with a dedicated unit on nutrition. Check out our show notes for the links. That's all for this week's episode. We'd like to thank Sartak, Amina, and Miriam for their hard work putting this podcast together. It was highly informative and nice to hear from a local dietitian, Kara. If we remember back to our first episode of the season with Brooklyn, a dietitian who spoke to us about supporting aging parents with nutrition and health, one of the quick tips she shared with us was to explore resources in your community. So it was great to learn about so many resources right here in our community for older adults. Definitely. Next up, we have students Hannah, Chloe, and Carolyn, who put together an episode on fruit and vegetable intake in children.
Welcome to Healthy Homes, the podcast where we talk to both experts and real-life parents for evidence-based information and advice to help your family become just a little bit happier and healthier. I'm your host, Hannah. I'm a mom of two, and I love learning about keeping my family healthy alongside you, the listeners. The topic of today's podcast is fruit and vegetable consumption in children. We'll be talking about why it's important, how much kids need, and strategies to increase your kids' fruit and vegetable consumption. Today we have a guest joining us, and later in the podcast, we'll be listening to some great call-in messages from parent listeners like yourself. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest, Chloe, to the podcast. Hi, Chloe. Hi, Hannah. Thanks for having me. Of course. So tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah. Hi, everyone. So I'm an undergraduate student at the University of Guelph studying applied human nutrition, and I've just spent a very exciting semester digging into research for my thesis project, studying fruit and vegetable intake in children. My work has also been focused on determining factors that can affect intake and practical strategies to help kids eat more. I'm Mm. really excited to discuss what I've learned with you and your listeners today. That sounds super interesting. It's really great to have an expert joining us to discuss this topic. So Chloe, we always hear about the importance of eating fruits and veggies. Can you tell us what the research says about why it's important? Well, there are plenty of reasons. For one, fruits and vegetables are an excellent source of many important nutrients, including fibers, vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants. Okay. There is also strong evidence that increased fruit and vegetable intake is associated with a decreased risk of many chronic diseases, such as heart disease, diabetes, obesity, and some cancers. Hmm. Eating habits developed in childhood also carry on into adulthood, so increasing fruit and vegetable intake in kids now can have a positive impact on their lifelong health. Wow, no wonder fruits and veggies are important. I actually never realized just how many benefits there are. Yeah, given all of these benefits, I find it quite surprising that only 3 in 10 Canadian children aged 4 to 8 are eating enough fruits and vegetables based on findings from the Canadian Community Health Survey run by Statistics Canada. Oh, wow. That's crazy. I guess that means that over half of Canadian children are not getting enough fruits and veggies. So how many fruits and veggies should children actually be eating then? Yeah, so the Canada's Food Guide recommends filling half your plate with fruits and vegetables, while the World Health Organization, or WHO, recommends eating at least five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. Follow whichever one is easiest for you. Okay, so what would one serving of fruits or vegetables look like? That's a great question. It can be really tricky since fruits and vegetables come in many different shapes and sizes. Mm -hmm. But for reference, one serving can be something like a medium apple or orange, half a cup of frozen or canned vegetables such as peas, a quarter cup of berries, or one cup of raw leafy greens like spinach. Awesome. Thanks for giving so many examples. Of course. I hope that clears up some of the confusion for the listeners as well. Yeah, definitely. So during your research, what other information have you found regarding fruits and veggie intake in children? Actually, there is a lot of interesting research investigating the factors that influence fruit and vegetable intake in children. Based on the research, some of the main influences include availability, accessibility, taste preferences, time, food security, and socioeconomic status. Oh, wow. 
I had no idea that there were so many different factors that all play a role in fruit and veggie intake of our kids. Hi Hannah, I'm Tian. First of all, I love the podcast. One thing that I've really struggled with is how quickly fresh fruits and veggies go bad in my fridge. I feel like I just bought them and they're already going bad. My kid is super picky and refuses to eat fruits and veggies with small blemishes and bruises. So I feel like I'm constantly wasting food and my kid isn't getting enough. What can I do? Thank you, Tian, for calling in and sharing this message with us. I can definitely relate to the struggle of fruits and veggies going bad before I get the chance to eat or cook them. Chloe, do you have any advice for Tian? Absolutely. It can be really frustrating to buy fruits and vegetables and then have them spoil in like a week. This is a common struggle, especially since kids can be super picky with what they eat. One thing that I would suggest is purchasing frozen or canned fruits and vegetables. They don't go bad nearly as quickly, and the research shows that they are just as nutritious as their fresh counterparts. They can also be a lot cheaper, which helps save money in the long run. But I would recommend choosing unsweetened and unsalted frozen and canned fruits and vegetables whenever possible to minimize your added salt and sugar intake. Mm, Yeah, that's great advice. I actually always keep a bag of frozen berries in my freezer, and I add them to my son's yogurt. It's super convenient, it's a lot more affordable than fresh, and my son loves that he can eat berries all year round, not just in the summer. Yes, exactly. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to our next caller. This message is from Ben. Hi, Hannah. One thing in my life that I found really challenging is that my son really doesn't like the taste of vegetables. I feel like I've tried so many combinations, but he's just dead set on hating everything to do with vegetables. I know how important it is, but it really makes me scared that I'm not being able to be the the best dad that I can be. So any advice to get him to eat more vegetables would be great. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for sharing, Ben. I think this is something that a lot of parents struggle with. Chloe, are there any evidence-based strategies for dealing with this? Absolutely, there are. It is normal for kids to dislike the taste of some fruits and vegetables the first time they taste them. And as we mentioned before, taste preferences can be a huge factor in your children's intakes. Based on the research, it's recommended to offer small amounts of new fruits and vegetables over multiple occasions. Also, experimenting with a variety of different cooking methods, seasonings, and spices can be helpful in feeling out what your kids' preferences are like. Yeah, that makes sense. Anything else? Actually, yes. A lot of times, kids refusing to eat fruits and vegetables can come from wanting autonomy in their choices, which makes sense because as a kid, you don't really get to make a lot of the decisions about your own life, and your parents do that for you. Mm. Forcing them to eat or punishing them for not eating their veggies has not been found to be an effective strategy and can actually cause more harm than good by creating negative associations with those foods. Yeah, those are really great points. We also asked you, our listeners, to share some strategies that have worked for you when trying to increase your kids' fruit and veggie intake. That's a great idea. After spending so much time looking at the research, I'm excited to hear some real-life experiences of parents. After all, as parents, you guys are the real experts. (laughs) Research has shown that children are more likely to want to eat fruits and vegetables they help to prepare. It's also a great way to help your kids develop cooking and food literacy skills. 
Cooking as a family can be a great way to spend time with your kids and have fun with food. Cool. So, do you have any suggestions on what activities kids can do in the kitchen? Of course. It depends a bit on their age and how comfortable they are. But some simple activities kids of most ages can do include mixing, mashing, or stirring ingredients. Six to eight-year-old kids can usually use basic equipment like a toaster, grater, blender, or can opener.、Hmm. Older kids, aged eight to eleven, are a bit more coordinated and may be able to use a knife safely with easy-to-cut foods, use a microwave with help, and use a stove with supervision. Yeah, that's great advice. Okay, our next message is from Nancy. Hi, Hannah. I'm Nancy, mom of three beautiful boys. One thing I've noticed is that my boys always want to be like mom. Whenever I sit down with a snack, my kids are always interested and want to try some. I've been able to get them to eat things they don't usually like just because I'm eating it, and they want to show off to their brothers that they're just like me. I thought this might be able to help other parents. Thanks again, Chloe. What does the research say? That's a great point, Nancy. Research has shown that this strategy can be an effective way to get your children to eat more fruits and vegetables. As kids, most of the time, you tend to copy or adopt the behaviors of the people around you. By showing your kid that you eat fruits and vegetables, this can help them feel less scared of trying new foods and encourage them to eat more fruits and vegetables too.、Hmm. Including plenty of fruits and vegetables during family meals and enjoying them yourself is a great way to encourage your kids to do the same. Wow, I didn't realize that this has actually been proven by the research. Okay, let's listen to our last call-in message from Renee. Hi, Hannah. My name is Renee. Some advice I wanted to share is to pre-prepare fruits and vegetables for your kids. For me, I like to wash and cut up fruit right after unloading my groceries. I found that when my daughter asked for snacks, by the time I'd finished preparing something healthy, she usually would have already eaten something out of the cupboard and be full. It takes a bit of time to prepare ahead, but having fruit and veggies in the fridge for her has helped, as usually she'll grab that first snack instead. So in the long run, it ends up saving some time. Hope this can help some other parents out there. <laughs> I know it's been a struggle. That's great advice, Renee. Chloe, what does the research say about this strategy? Hi, Renee. That's a really great point. Research has shown that fruit and vegetable availability and accessibility at home are key predictors of intake. Pre-preparing ready-to-eat fruit and vegetable snacks is a great strategy to get your kids to eat more fruits and veggies by making it more convenient and easy for them to access. It can also be helpful to store your fruits and vegetables in places that are easily accessible for your kids. For example, try keeping a fruit bowl on the counter or store baby carrots on a shelf in the fridge your kids can reach. Thanks, Chloe. That's great advice. Before we end for today, Chloe and I both chose one resource that we wanted to highlight and share with you all. Chloe, did you want to start with yours? Sure. Through my thesis work, I've had the great opportunity to work with a few researchers involved in the Guelph Family Health Study. They've developed a cookbook based on Canada's food guide recommendation of filling half your plate with fruits and vegetables. There's an amazing stir-fry recipe that's packed with vegetables, and it only takes 30 minutes to make. It's a great resource to check out, and I really can't recommend it enough.
That sounds like a really great cookbook. A resource that I think would be helpful for parents is looking into any cooking classes or demonstrations that are offered in your local area. These cooking classes can help you hone your cooking skills and teach you some creative ways to incorporate fruits and vegetables into some really delicious meals. And you and your kids can both enjoy them. There are classes that are tailored to a range of different skill levels from beginner to advanced. It's also great for those who are looking for some hands-on experience. Mm-hmm. That sounds amazing, Hannah. Yeah. Did you have any final thoughts that you wanted to share with our listeners? Actually, one important thing for parents to know is that not every strategy is going to work for you. There may be a bit of trial and error to find something that works for your family and lifestyle, and that's okay. Yeah, exactly. It's a process. Just by listening to this podcast episode, you're already showing a commitment to improve your child's fruit and vegetable consumption. Each small step makes a difference, so be kind to yourself. Mm -hmm. You're all doing great. Exactly. It's the small steps that matter. Just before we end off, one more piece of research. An increase in fruit and vegetable intake as small as one serving a day was found to make a difference. Oh, that's amazing. All right. I think that about wraps things up. Thanks so much, Chloe, for coming on today and providing your expertise. I would also like to thank all our parent listeners for sharing their personal insights and advice. Happy to be a resource. Thank you for having me. It was such a pleasure being part of your podcast today and to learn from all the wisdom your listeners shared. On that note, thank you all for tuning in to the Healthy Homes Podcast. What a great episode with so many relevant tips for our Guelph Family Health Study families. Fruit and vegetable intake is certainly something that can be challenging with younger children. And these tips that they shared are so helpful. Yes, I love that they mentioned how not every strategy will work for every family. It's a process for sure and a great reminder to be kind to ourselves. Thank you, Hannah, Chloe, and Carolyn. Our last student episode features Angeline, Kyra, and Catherine's podcast on picky eating. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of When Picky Gets Tricky. I'm your host, Kyra Ash, and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Angeline Gelati. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm really looking forward to today's episode. How about you, Kyra? Me too. We have a lot of exciting things to talk about in today's episode. For those of you who are new, Angeline and I are two fourth-year students in the Applied Human Nutrition program within the Dietetic Stream at the University of Guelph. We have both spent an entire semester analyzing the literature on food-related behaviors amongst children aged 2 to 5, and therefore are highly informed on the causes and influence of these behaviors. It turns out 14 to 50 percent of parents categorize their children as picky eaters. This is the whole reason why we started this podcast. We wanted to educate parents and guardians on how to confidently manage their child's picky eating behaviors. Do you want to introduce us to our topic today, Angeline? Of course. So to begin, we have received a lot of feedback from parents. Since we know that parents have a large influence on these behaviors, we decided that it would be really beneficial to hear directly from them. We are hoping to discuss possible strategies to improve both the parents' and children's experiences during mealtimes. Before we introduce our guests today, maybe we should remind our audience on what these picky eating behaviors are exactly. Of course. Picky eating varies significantly among children, but generally speaking, picky eating can be defined as a child developing resistance towards specific foods or food groups. We know that a child's rapid growth and development periods slow down between the ages of 2 and 5, causing a natural decrease in the child's appetite. 
this is the primary age that we're going to be focusing on today. Yeah, it can be extremely difficult to navigate a child's palate. It's also challenging for some parents to be confident that their picky eater is consuming enough nutrients to sustain proper growth and development. We hope today that our listeners will benefit from the conversations that we have. I was a really picky eater as a child. My mom admits that she really struggled with making sure I was eating enough. Because of this, I've started to dive deeper into ways that I can begin to prevent the same outcome in my child, even during pregnancy. Kyra and I have both done a lot of research in this area. Interestingly, some of the findings suggest that babies develop preferences for taste based on the flavors they experience in the womb. So with that being said, it is really helpful to include a wide variety of foods in your diet, even during pregnancy. Do you still consider yourself to be a picky eater? Not really. I mean, there's a few things that I prefer not to eat, but I try to make an effort in most circumstances. So are you finding it hard to implement some of these strategies to diversify your intake? Like, do you have any questions or suggestions for parents who are trying to prevent similar outcomes in their child? It has definitely pushed me out of my comfort zone. For example, I used to avoid tomatoes at all costs, but I started to incorporate them into mixed dishes like a creamy pasta sauce or hide them into my sandwiches. Because of this, I have adjusted to the taste a bit more, and I honestly enjoy tomatoes in most foods now, surprisingly. So really, I would just suggest simply trying to incorporate different foods and flavors more often. That's a great way to start adding foods into your diet because it also exposes the baby to new flavors as well. Similar experiences occur while breastfeeding. If this is a decision that you choose to make, it's helpful to continue to diversify your diet so that the baby can experience flavors associated with different fruits, vegetables, proteins before they're even introduced to the food itself. It will certainly help expose them to foods that they will be eating when they're ready for solids. With that being said, it doesn't necessarily mean that your child is going to be born loving tomatoes right away, but it certainly does help. Yeah, thanks for noting that, Kyra. It's crazy because we often think that modeling good dietary habits doesn't start until the child is born, when in fact, a mother is already setting an example for their child, even when they're in their belly. While we're on the topic of modeling food behaviors, it's also worth noting that a parent's dislikes are often observed by the child. For example, if you don't like peas and your child hears you say, I don't like peas, or notices that you never eat peas at dinner time, they will replicate this behavior. It's highly effective for you to model the behaviors that you hope to instill in your child, so you might as well start as early as possible. Yes, that's such an important point to mention, Kyra. All right, let's not keep our guest Sophia waiting any longer. Welcome to the podcast, Sophia. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell us why you are here today? Hi, everyone. I'm learning so much already from the discussion so far. Thanks for having me today. So my name is Sophia. I'm a mother to a three-year-old named Jeffrey, and we live in Guelph as well. I have been struggling with my child's picky eating for some time now. He will not eat what I prepare for him. And I get so frustrated because I don't have a lot of time to prepare certain meals. So when I do, I really expect him to eat it. Well, your frustrations are completely understandable. May I ask what you do when he won't eat the foods that you've prepared? I mean, it depends on my mood. Sometimes I might say, you have to eat three bites. Or if you don't eat, you don't get dessert. Other nights, I'm just like, if you don't like it, then don't eat it. But in those circumstances, he often just doesn't eat. And I'm not sure if that's the right thing to do. Do you have any advice on how I can navigate these situations better? 
Yeah, it is certainly hard to know what the right thing to do is in those certain situations, but just know that you are definitely not alone and there are many parents experiencing the same difficulty. So I noticed you mentioned that you expect him to eat the meals you prepare for him, but just remember this is considered a normal time for children to be a little more resistant than usual. So it's important to, you know, not have unrealistic expectations because this will only create more frustration for you. A really great way to set up a meal for success is to be clear with your child about what behaviors you expect from them before they even start eating. For example, you might suggest that the child at least comes to the dinner table to sit when the food is prepared, but ultimately they still have the ability to choose if they want to eat or not. If they only have a couple of bites, then that's okay. So some of the things that I already do, and I'm not sure if this is good, but I will tell Jeffrey before dinner, if I have the time, we're all going to sit at the table as a family and eat. When I see that you're playing with your food, I will assume that you're done eating. I always try to sit with them as much as I can during meal times and really give them my undivided attention. That's a really good thing to do, Sophia, and I'm really glad that you mentioned that. As a parent, you are in charge of what your child eats, when they eat it, and where. But it's ultimately the child's decision about how much they want to eat and whether they want to eat it. This helps to solidify the relationship they are beginning to have with food. Sophia, have you ever been in a situation where you are full, but that plate of food is right in front of you and you feel obligated to finish it? Oh my goodness, for sure. I grew up in a household where my parents always told me I had to finish the food on my plate before I could go anywhere or get a treat. An example I struggle with even today was just this past Thanksgiving at dinner this year. I unknowingly added too much food to my plate and I'm literally stuffed, but I still pick away at the food like I need to finish it. But ultimately, I end up over consuming feeling guilty, and wondering why I just can't stop eating when I feel full. Exactly. That is a perfect narrative, Sophia, and it's so common. In a way, you're ignoring the messages your body is telling you to stop eating because it may have been engraved in your mind as a child that you have to finish your plate. So the goal for the child during mealtimes is to allow them to listen to their body telling them, you know, I'm not hungry, and they won't feel the need to eat because they have to and hopefully they will learn to stop eating when they're full. Yeah, I can definitely see your point there, but how am I supposed to make sure that my child is getting all of the essential nutrients he needs if he's the one taking the lead? Well, you can continue to provide nutritious foods as options for them so they can become familiar with that food, and eventually they're likely to taste it or even eat it. Research suggests that a child should be exposed to the same food at least 15 times before it's trusted or tasted, and even further, 10 to 15 exposures for the child to actually begin to have a preference for that food. Okay, I see what you mean. Sometimes as well, I like to tell Jeff stories about his vegetables to help him get more excited and more willing to want to eat it. Jeff loves these stories, and I'll say things like, what does the broccoli look like? And he always loves to say, oh, it looks like a little tree, to which I always tell him, just like a tree, if you eat it, you'll grow big and strong too. It's really helped him enjoy broccoli more, but it doesn't always work with every vegetable, especially the ones that he absolutely refuses to eat. Yeah, that's such a great tactic, Sophia. Kids are so curious and they love to learn. 
You can also present the vegetables in a different manner. My mom always made a yummy cheese sauce and put it all over our broccoli so we were more inclined to eat it. Or you can incorporate it into a pasta dish and really small pieces too. We understand that it's not always going to be easy. There's a lot of things to consider, but the child's body requires food for survival. All you can do is provide them with nutritious options. Eventually, they're going to want to eat. Okay, yeah, I definitely think I could give that a try. Sophia, I just want to ask, you know, what's your thoughts on everything so far? Have the recommendations or suggestions we have given to you been helpful? Oh, absolutely. Everything that we've talked about so far has been incredibly helpful. I've realized that maybe using some of the tactics that I previously mentioned, like saying you need to eat your dinner before dessert, might not even be as helpful as I thought. Yeah, don't get me wrong. This is definitely a common practice amongst many parents. Just keep in mind that restricting certain foods or food groups from them and using food as a reward is associated with poor dietary intake to which literature suggests. For example, if you say, if you eat your dinner, you can get a cookie. They may place a higher value then on that cookie. So when they grow older and these foods become freely available to them, the research suggests that they are more likely to overconsume them. Yeah, I mean, maybe I am just being too hard on myself. I think what I'm gathering here is that I need to be a little less controlling and trust the process more. I definitely think that dinner times especially, that I can totally make more of an effort to be present with Jeffrey at the table in order to set those good examples. You are doing the best you can and that's all we can ask. Parenting isn't perfect and you have to trust your child. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about with us today, Sophia? No, I honestly think that we covered a lot of my questions and concerns today. Well, if you do have further questions or want to learn more, there are some really great resources you and our listeners can access. The University of Guelph has a Guelph Family Health Study Team that provides plenty of resources for families, including a things like a cookbook, informative YouTube videos, infographics, and much more. You can find these resources at www.guelphfamilyhealthstudy.com. We may not have covered all of our guests' questions, so we definitely suggest taking a look at some of these resources. Yeah, wow, I did not know that at all. I will definitely check those out. Thank you so much for having me. I really do feel much more refreshed and informed about how I can handle these situations better I really do hope that my story helps other parents as well. Thank you so much, Sophia. It has been so great chatting with you today. Having your parental expertise has sparked some really practical conversation. Dealing with picky eating children is definitely very stressful. We hope that some of our viewers are able to resonate with these challenges and find our solutions helpful. We want to thank our listeners for joining When Picky Gets Tricky this week. We really appreciate your time with us today. Until next time. Another informative podcast with so many great tips that our families can use if they're facing picky eating, which is so common in children. Like our episode with Dr. Catherine Walton highlighted earlier on in this season, it's so important to remember that feeding really is a long game. And especially with younger children, they're at the stage where they're developing their autonomy. So it's important to keep this in mind as a parent when you're working through picky eating. Thank you, Angeline, Kyra, and Catherine. 
To wrap up our episode today, we want to thank the students from Nutrition Education for their hard work in putting these podcasts together and for sharing them with us on the Healthy Habits, Happy Homes podcast. We hope our listeners enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time.